Perhaps you remember or have played this game before. Perhaps you were when you were a child um, or growing up in a youth group of some kind or perhaps as an adult you've played the telephone game. You remember the game that you would gather around in a circle in the classroom and the teacher would tell a message to the first student and that student then would pass it to the next one and the next all the way around and then everyone would laugh at the end because the original message would be so vastly different than the, than the first message. As it made its way from each student, it would change slightly. Maybe a little bit was added. No one was intentionally seeking to de- deceive. No one was intentionally changing, but, but the message was changed as it was passed on from one student to the next. And so often as we think about the Bible, many are confused and think that is exactly how the Bible came to be. It was passed down from generation to generation and uh, upon the subsequent generation changed it. Maybe added a little bit to it. Maybe got rid of some things that they didn't like and molded it to fit their particular context. This morning in John chapter 21, there's a particular emphasis placed upon the reliability of the message that John has given. Like 1 John and 2 and 3 John, John has a sort of particular eye to ensure that his readers know that the message he communicates is a reliable message. So, for example, in 1 John, he begins by talking about the apostolic witness, about how we have seen the Lord, how we touched him, how we heard him. He sort of goes through the senses uh, of the human experience and says, we really knew him. And this unified apostolic witness to the person and work of Jesus and And here in the Gospel of John, John concludes by making sure that the reader understands that what is recorded through through chapter 1 through 21 is a reliable eyewitness account. It is what took place. It is unlike that little telephone game where the message got obscured over thousands of years, but rather what we have before us this morning. What you're holding in front of you is John's recorded witness, his eyewitness testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Such that you can depend your eternal soul upon it. That John didn't merely write this message on his own, but he was inspired by the Holy Spirit as Jesus had promised in John chapter 17. That when they were filled with the Spirit, that they would receive the authoritative word of God. And this morning, we want to think about how our lives together are to be centered upon the word of God. This morning, as you think about the reliability of Scripture, the reliability of of the teachings of Jesus, imagine for a moment if what we have before us is none other than that telephone game. 
If what we had before us was was nothing more than than thousands of years of generational passing down of stories and and those stories been added to and changed and and morphed into whatever they are. Think about for a moment today how our culture would take this message and change it and twist it in order to fit its own cultural context. But the Bible is not that. It is a reliable witness. It is inspired by God himself. God spoke through these authors to communicate, to reveal who he is, that you might know him and know yourself better. That you might depend upon it. So this morning, we want to see this as a reliable witness account to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, again, before we read John 21, uh, we're just reminded where we're at. Last week, we considered in John chapter 20, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in that, there was some post-resurrection accounts. Uh, Jesus was revealed himself in multiple different contexts to multiple different people, uh, such that the Apostle Paul says that he was witnessed by 500 or more people. From the beginning to John and Peter being two people as eyewitnesses to the resurrection, to Mary Magdalene and the, and the, the, the women who went down to the, to the tomb, to, to Thomas and the other disciples and and so on and so forth. We, we see this case being built that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And as John sort of wraps up all of this, we want to have in mind not merely these immediate events of the trial and resurrection of Christ, but we want to have in mind this morning the whole gospel. That Jesus here is going to be alluding to events that took place throughout his entire ministry. We want to think about their meaning for us this morning. Don't invite you to turn, if you've not already, to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Page 907, if you have a pew Bible. I just me encourage you to have a Bible open. If you don't, grab one of those ones in front of you. John records. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That is the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the others of his disciples were together. Two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. Then they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from then, but about a hundred yards off. 
When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, Do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This was the show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple whom is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. A fitting conclusion to a book centered on the word that became flesh. In this final chapter, John makes a particular point about the reliability of the word, the message that has come. His point can be reduced down to simply that the words and works of Jesus are central to the gathering of God's people. That disciples are formed and finished through the regular teaching of God's word. In this final chapter, we see an illustration, a living illustration of what the disciples were to do. They were to feed upon Jesus and feed others Jesus. They were to feast upon the words of Jesus. They, They were to find their strength only in Jesus, in the teachings of Christ, and they were to teach others the words of Jesus. 
So our time this morning is to ensure us of the reliability of God's word through these eyewitness accounts and to encourage us to make the feeding of God's word central to our lives together. And so we see both through the illustration and through the application of the illustration, these two points. First, friend, feast on God's word. Secondly, feed God's people his word. There is a central point, a priority that is being placed upon these disciples. Now again, let's, let's get our context in order. These particular disciples, these particular men, have all deserted Jesus. Every last one of them, from their leaders and the leadership team of three, of Peter, James, and John, all the way down through the rest, have all sort of deserted and run. Hiding themselves in the upper room because they're so scared of the Jews. Jesus comes and confronts them in this. You've got Thomas confused and doubting. And here in this particular scene, you've got the disciples just like, hey, we're going to go fishing. We've got nothing else to do but to fish. And Jesus comes and recommissions them to ministry and says, listen, I want you to be about my business. It is a really quite unique perspective considering how the other synoptic gospels end. That is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Each of those Gospels ending very differently than this particular Gospel this morning. Hold on just a second, because y'all are going to freak out about this fan. I know everyone's distracted about this silly fan this morning. I don't know what's wrong with it. Pastor Rod broke it. <laughs> this fan is not demon-possessed, okay? And yes, I did see that this fan was, was going different directions. All right. Well, in 20 years, when we listen to the audio of this, we can all laugh. No one's going to listen to this again. Two points that if you take notes this morning. First, feast on God's word. Secondly, feed others God's word. A particular priority. First, in verses 1 through 14. We're told in verses 1 through 3 that the disciples had an unsuccessful night of fishing. Now, we have a list here. It's not all the disciples. It was just a handful. Seven of these guys got together. They were the ones that were all centrally located there in Galilee. Uh, some were missing, like Matthew wasn't there. What was the point? These guys were professionals. And particularly, Peter, James, and John were professional fishermen. And that night, they caught nothing. These men toiled and labored all night on the Sea of Galilee, a sea that they knew well, a sea that they spent countless hours, thousands of hours fishing. They knew where all the fishing spots were. But that particular night, we are told that they caught nothing. Now think about it, what an embarrassment that would have been to them. No doubt many fish today and go out fishing or are experts at fishing, but yet have unsuccessful nights. But in light of all the things that have gone into their life, in light of the fact that their Savior has been crucified and raised again, in light of the fact that their last three years have been completely turned upside down, they just wanted to have a little luck. And we're told that they were completely and utterly unsuccessful. They caught nothing. But then in verses 4 through 8, we're told that Jesus comes and confronts them and calls them. Sort of un uh, 
anticipated command from the sword. Jesus cries out to them, hey guys, did you catch anything? Just to sort of reinforce the fact that they had nothing in their boat, that these professional fishermen couldn't catch a single fish. Jesus calls out to them, children, do you have any fish? For which they replied, no. And what we have here, though it's not recorded in John's gospel, is a very similar scene to the scene that, John's, that, that the disciples of Jesus perhaps would have recalled. Interestingly enough, John does not record that earlier scene that Luke records. Luke records that when the disciples were first called, the first few disciples were called to ministry, um, it was a similar scene. They had been out fishing all night and they caught nothing. And Jesus says, hey, just throw your net over onto the other side. And lo and behold, they caught fish. And in this recommissioning service here on the disciples' behalf, Jesus recreates a similar situation for which the sovereign God prevents them from catching a single fish, but yet is able to conjure up 153 at a command. And so Jesus' disciples immediately do it. And as you think about this story, do you think about what's happening here? These professional fishermen are taking advice from a guy who may do not know who is a hundred yards away on the shore. If you've ever been around any fishermen, most fishermen are going to be like, I don't think so, buddy. We've been out here all night long. We know all the sweet spots in this lake. Trust me, fella, we aren't going to catch anything, but that's not their response. So they cast it there in verse six. We are told that they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And upon realizing this miracle, John, who's identified throughout the gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And Peter's reaction is, is the reaction of a son to a father. He, uh, <laughs> He jumps into the water and runs to Jesus, or swims to Jesus. And the other disciples, we are told, then brings the haul of fish in. And what they find there is quite unexpected in that Jesus had already provided breakfast. And a number of things we want to point out about this particular scene is first that Jesus didn't need their fish. Look there at verse 9. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. It's interesting, is it not, that the specific number that someone sat down and counted them? Why? Because this is a reliable eyewitness account. It wasn't just that some fish got caught that day, but someone sat down and numbered those fish, and John remembered that there was 153 fish that day, and they weren't just like little minnows, they were big old fish. But so many that the nets were not torn. 
And Jesus invites them to come and have breakfast with them. And this is where we want to understand that the language, that the words, the verbs, the, the nouns, all of this that John is using here are the exact verbs and nouns and phrases that Jesus uses at the feeding of the 5,000. And you'll be reminded that post-feeding of the 5,000, the disciples were out on the same lake, freaking out of their minds because they thought they were going to drown. And Jesus came to them and confronted them and said, listen, guys, you must learn to feast on my word. To trust my word. And the language he uses here, he says in verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Friends, it's not a coincidence that Jesus here is with bread and fish. The very means that he used to multiply to the 5,000, he's using here to teach these particular disciples that they must remain committed to the word of God. This is the point of the entire gospel of John. The very, the very first words of the Gospel of John, the very, the very first phrase in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or in John chapter 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Or in John chapter 14, there in the upper room, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our abode with him. Or in John chapter 17, as Jesus cries out in that high priestly prayer, sanctify them with your word. Your word is truth. Jesus set the disciples up for failure. So that they would rely on him and not on them. They were about to enter into the worst of the life they've ever experienced. For three years they had been walking with Jesus. Things are about to utterly transform. They are going to become public enemy number one. If you just want to read more about that sort of first days, you can go to the book of Acts and you can see how things begin to unravel the lives of these disciples such that those around them are, are killed, stoned to death. They're running, they're on the run. But, but while it, it's one of the scariest times, it's one of the most glorious times as, as people are coming to know Jesus, com- coming to repent of their sins and trust. And they needed to realize, they needed to come to the realization that they could not do it without the word of God. That when persecution was to come, the only thing that would give them a sure foundation, the only thing that would keep them grounded wasn't their own abilities, but was the ability of God to keep them and to sustain them. Jesus here provides everything that they're feasting on. Jesus provides the fish, the 153 fish. Jesus provides the bread. Jesus provides everything that they need. Jesus here is teaching a truth that every believer has to come to realize that we need the word of God. This morning, are you feeding on God's word? Is the word of God central in your heart and life is the word. And when I mean word, I don't mean just like words. I mean the totality of the teaching of Jesus contained in Genesis through Revelation, the word of God. Does it inform the way you understand 
who God is. Who you are and why this world is so messed up. Just this past week, and some of the tragedies that we've been seeing in this world, uh, mass murders, shootings. As Christians, we need to have a good understanding of the depravity of man to have a, a lens to be able to interpret and understand the events going on around us. Lest we run around like chickens with our heads cut off or, or, or that the sky is falling. Friends, these things are not new to a fallen and broken world. They're just using different tools. These are just different tools that Satan uses to seek to turn this world upside down. Friends, your understanding of God must come from the scriptures, not from your perception, what you think or what the God you want to be like. You might be really uh, creative and you might think that your God is really awesome. But here's the thing. The God of the Bible, the God of this cosmos, the God who spoke into existence is revealed here and here alone. And there are a lot of competing worldviews that label themselves Christians that are not biblical Christians. And your understanding needs to come from here, not from there. Friends, studying God's word is not a task to check off. If reading your Bible is drudgery, I think you're approaching it very wrongly, to use bad grammar. Our approach to Scripture must not be something to check off to appease God or get prayers answered or have success in the Christian life. Rather, we want to see reading God's Word and, and, and listening to sermons and gathering with God's people to study the Bible as an invitation to know the one true and living God and to be transformed by it. The Bible testifies to, to itself that it is, is a sword. That it divides. It clarifies. It, it makes clear. It, it, it's active. It's sharp. It's painful. Friend, if you don't walk away from the Bible inflicted in some way, you haven't been reading the Bible. There's not a morning I don't walk away from the Bible really feeling it. Like, that hurts, like, but, but that's what we need. We, we need something to clarify us, to, to push the fog away. This fog that settles around us this morning is so evident in our, the way we see and perceive the world around us. We can only see so far because our vision is impaired because we're not spending sufficient time thinking in a holistic way about what God is up to in this world. This is why so often we can become negative Nellies. Think the sky is falling. Man, Jesus is not in heaven stressed out, biting his nails over anything that has happened in the last 365 days. Or in the last 365 years or centuries or whatever the metric of time you're looking at. God has an eternal purpose for which he is realizing through his people as they preach Christ and him crucified. 
Friends, studying and feasting on the Word of God is more than merely reading it. It's also obeying it. As James warned his readers, don't be like the guy who looks at a mirror and then forgets what he looks like when he walks away, but rather study God's Word and allow it to change you. In other words, we want to feast on Jesus by being transformed. We want to read the Bible for transformation, for change. We want to think about what is this teaching me? How is it confronting my wrong view, my false view of who God is or who I am or the world around me? This is what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He's helping reorient and recommission them for the ministry that is ahead. A ministry that will be centered upon his revealed will and word. They were to be messengers of the word of God. He promised them. He told them. He says, guys, listen to this. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out on you, you will be reminded by the power of the Holy Spirit. Miraculously, you will remember all these conversations that we've had over the last three years. And the Holy Spirit will give you the ability to interpret and to understand what the cross means and what the resurrection and how that fits within God's grand meta narrative of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Such that the Apostle John, who's writing this, would write that grand revelation of glory and fit it within the context of all of Scripture. That it's not just sort of some one-off book that's kind of weird and it's got all this apocalyptic stuff. But rather, he, he tells a story about what God has been up to since eternity past. God's Word is to be central in the lives of people. Friend, do you, do you approach God's word with a sense of excitement? That you, like Moses, get to meet with the Lord? As one man talks to another face to face, so we get to meet Jesus in his word. We ought to count it a privilege. We ought to understand the blood that was shed in order for you and I to have words right in front of our faces in a language that we can read. Brothers and sisters who came before us who was willing to die that the word of God be interpreted into the English language thought something that is radically different than how we often live in light of God's word. God's word must be central. We must depend upon. It is the first step of discipleship. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to follow him by resting in his ability to feed us, not in our ability to be self-feeders. This is what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is feeding his disciples. He's saying, listen, guys, I'm going to give you everything you need for this mission. Don't worry. So we must feast on Jesus. But we see secondly in this section in verses 15 through 25. That we must not only feast, but we must ensure that others are feasting on his word as well. Now, part of what's going on here in this final chapter is is this recommissioning of the disciples. A, a, a a, A realization for us as the reader That these guys are who God has called to complete the mission. 
you'll be reminded that Peter, remember? And Peter, he was, he's the guy that always put his foot in the mouth. He, he is the guy who's always like, Jesus, I'm willing to die for you. I will die for you right now. I'm even going to chop off a dude's ear for you. That's how serious I am about this. Right? He's a serious fellow. Right? How many of you here have chopped off someone's ear for Jesus? No, none of you. Peter was ready to die. And Jesus told him, really, Peter? You're ready to die for me? You're not going to make it a minute in the hot seat with the servant girl before you're crying and saying you don't even know me. Three times with that rooster crow. The first time you thought that like, it would have been a bell reminding you of what, I'm about, what, I, what I told you. And the second time, the alarm might have went off, right? By at least the second crow, like, oh, Jesus said something about this. I don't know. Anyways, I'm just going about my business. But by the third time, it made very clear that you want to go your own way. Peter, you're not willing to die for me. But guess what? One day you will die for me. In these final verses, Jesus restores Peter as the under-shepherd that God called him to be. Peter was a leader among the disciples. He was often a spokesperson. Though some have perverted that into false teaching, the point particularly here is that Peter was a leader. He was a leader among these disciples, along with James and his brother John, who's writing this. They were sort of the three amigos, Jesus' inner circle. They were the leaders among the disciples and they, they were leading out and they were to lead. But Peter had to be restored before Jesus ascended so that everybody among the disciples and among those who were to follow after Jesus were assured that Peter was a legitimate leader. That Peter's teaching. And, and friend, just a little exercise for you, if you will. I want you to read the Apostle Peter's writings in First and Second Peter in light of this chapter, in light of what you know about him, and, and see if that doesn't help you gain a little bit of a lens into what he's saying and how he's writing. You do not think that he wrote what you heard Pastor Rod read earlier in First Peter chapter 1 with a little bit of excitement, knowing that he had been born again to a living hope, knowing that he was a rotten scoundrel who denied his own Lord three times? And as gracious as Jesus can be, he comes and he restores Peter three times. A full restoration. He denied him three times and he restores him three times. And, and, a, and a much to do about nothing has been made about this restoration. And we're not going to get into those weeds this morning. But I want to look at it. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What's he talking about? Remember? Jesus, I'm ready to die for you. Do you love me more than these other guys do? Is your love greater than their love? Remember, Peter, I thought you were all about, I, I'm the most loved. I'm the most loving. I'm the one that's going to stand beside you. Do you really love me more than all of these, Peter? 
Again, he asks him a second time in verse 16. Simon, son of John. He's he's his mama, right? Calling him by his first name. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then a third time in verse 17. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me, he says. I want you to remind her of the context here. Only twice in the Gospel of John has a charcoal fire been mentioned. Here in verse 20, in chapter 21. And there where Peter denied him. As he warmed himself by that charcoal fire. Charcoal fires have a, a particular smell about them. A particular uh, sense, scent. And our emotions, our, our, our memories are often uh, excited, awakened through scent. You smell a flower and it recalls something that happened in the past. Jesus was fully aware of where Peter denied him. Peter was fully aware that he denied Jesus. One could even argue that maybe Peter was being a little overzealous by jumping in the water and swimming quickly to shore. Maybe trying to show and demonstrate to Jesus that he was legit, that he was willing to follow him, like looking for forgiveness. Jesus comes and graciously restores him with these three questions, a probing question. Probing Peter's soul. Do you really love me? You see, repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just forgetting about what we did, but understanding that Jesus deals with what we did in the cross. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about sweeping sin away, just sort of like, ah, sin's not a big deal. But here Jesus graciously calls to reminder these three denials of Peter in order to fully restore him And I just wonder, are are we like Jesus in this moment? How often are we so quick to hold a grudge when someone sins against us? How quick are we so fast to, to just sort of say, no, I'm done with them. They hurt me. Jesus takes someone who publicly denied him three times. And mercifully and graciously restores him. Spurgeon once said, it's easy to bring the man to the river of regret, but you can't make him drink from the water of repentance. It's so true. We carry around a lot of regret. No doubt Peter had some regret. In hindsight, what was the big deal? John was there. John was hobnobbing with all the folks at the the high priest's house, and he was fine. Why was Peter so afraid? His best friend was with him. What was the worst that could have happened? They would have kicked him out. But he was so scared, so afraid that he was willing to deny. But yet here in the midst of that regret, Jesus graciously restores him. But he doesn't just restore him. He recommissions him through these commands that he gives. Three times Jesus responds with an exhortation, an imperative. He says, Peter, you've got a job to do. You can't be meddling around with charcoal fires, worrying about and fearful. You've got a task that I've given you. 
He says, I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to tend my sheep. I want you to feed my sheep. Very clearly, taking this from D.A. Carson. Uh, D.A. Carson says this, uh, Peter, them ain't you sheep, all right? So D.A. Carson says, hey, listen, these are Jesus' sheep. Peter ain't no vicar, all right? He's not the vicar of Rome. These aren't his sheep, all right? He's... He's saying that they're my sheep and and you're to shepherd my sheep. And so what is he commissioning them to do but to be a pastor? You know, the the word pastor that we use interchangeably in our language today means to shepherd. He says, I want you to pastor my people. I want you to feed them my word. I want that to be a priority for you. This is what you are to do. You are to feed. Twice he says to feed. Once he says to tend. The idea here is to shepherd God's people with the word of God. And that's what Peter does. Luke records all throughout the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, again and again. What's Peter doing? Is Peter running leadership seminars? Is Peter running uh, committee meetings? Is Peter running a denomination? No, no. He's pastoring people with what? The word of God. Preaching, sermons. Teaching, Bible studies, helping people follow Jesus, evangelizing with the word. Not with programs. He's not like, hey, come find the best life now. No, no. He says, listen, if you want to follow Jesus, you rotten scoundrels who hung him on the cross, this is what you need to do. He boldly preached where where once he was scared and running chicken. He boldly stands up and he even points the finger at people and says, you murdered Jesus and you did it. And you were there crying, crucify him. But guess what? It's all good. Jesus died for your sin if you will just turn and believe in him. In one of his sermons, he says this in Acts chapter 10. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Listen, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us, listen, here it is. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. He commanded us, he said. And right here in this this recommissioning service, he's commanding his disciples to feed by the word. A centrality of the word of God to the people of God that will ultimately create God's people. And he reassures him that if you get on my path, it's going to be a dark and it's going to be a hard path. He says, listen, you have a task to do, and that task is ultimately going to lead to your demise, to your death. Look there at verse 18. Truly, truly, verily, verily. Jesus only did that. Basically, it says, listen, listen, pay attention, pay attention. I'm about to say something serious. I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. In other words, you had the free will to do whatever you wanted, but not anymore. 
When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Unless we're confused what Jesus is talking about, John gives us a little quote, a little uh, interpretation. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Jesus, I'm willing to die for you. Are you? You will. But it doesn't matter. You just follow me. Follow me wherever it leads. You follow me. That Peter, your responsibility, your task, your job has a singular focus and it's to follow me. And where did Jesus go? But to the cross. Church history records for us that Peter did die a gruesome death. He was crucified and died for following Jesus. In these final verses, we are told that upon the restoration of Peter... Peter's still learning, right? God, I love Peter. Uh, he's still learning. And, uh, and right now, he, he's kind of worried. All right. But what about that guy? We're told that John was following close at hand. The one whom was the beloved. In these final verses, John reveals his identity to us as the reader. Though we've known all along, it's been the Apostle John. Here in these final verses, he reveals that he himself is none other than the beloved disciple. And he says that, that this beloved disciple, the one whom asked Peter, who was leaning against the Lord, who was next to Peter, who, who is it that's going to betray you? Verse 21, when Peter saw John, he said to the Lord, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? What about this man? And Jesus said to him, it is, if it's my will that he remain until he come, what is that to you? You follow me. And then a rumor was spread. Look at that. Even gossip in the first church, right? Seems to be an issue Christians have been dealing with for 2,000 years. But nonetheless, we are told here in these final verses, in verses 24 and 25, that, that this disciple, the one who's bearing witness, is a reliable witness. He, he saw these things. He, he was there. He was an eyewitness to them. And we know that his testimony is true. And he uses that sort of inclusive we there to say that it is this apostolic witness that we know his testimony. Us disciples testify that John the apostle was there and bore witness. And he concludes with this ironic statement. Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were, were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What's John mean? John means this. You don't need anything else. You have not only a reliable eyewitness account, but you have a sufficient eyewitness account. That Yes, we could write books upon books upon books, but you only need one book, he says. And he's referencing the, the teachings of the apostle. Brothers and sisters, there must be a priority in our life of not only feeding on God's word, but also feeding others God's word. As a local church, this is a congregational church. That means that, that you all, as the members of this church, have, have the authority. That the keys have been given to you as a church. And so church, listen to this. You need to prioritize the preaching of God's word. Period. I didn't say prioritize preachers. I said prioritize the preaching 
of God's word. That means that the Lord's Day gathering is to be a priority. It's right there in what we've covenanted together that we will, we will say, hey, look, there's a lot of great things to do on Sunday mornings, but there is a priority that I place. And did you know that your faithful presence here each day is a witness to those around you who are unfaithful? Lest we be the pot calling the kettle black, right? A priority of the, God, the word of God. But not only in the preaching of God's word, but in the teaching among God's people. We want to put a, an emphasis on God's word, not on our wisdom. This means that you want to communicate and help one another follow Jesus, not with your sage wisdom, but with the word of God. This is why you've got to be in the word. If you ain't in the word, then you're not going to be teaching people the word. If you're in the world, what are you going to be teaching people? The world. Right? If you're reading Oprah all the time, you're going to just be regurgitating what Oprah has to say. But if you're in the word of God and, and, and his word is written upon your heart, it's a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, then you are going to light other people's path with the same word. No fool that has a flashlight is going to lay it aside and say, hey, look, I'm going to help you find your way in this dark forest, but I'm going to leave my flashlight at home. Brothers and sisters, we must, we must, we must commit to the word of God. As Christians, we follow Jesus not only by feasting on his word ourselves, but, but putting that priority that, that we know that what people are being fed with is God's word. We want to ensure that not, that not only ourselves, but fellow believers are around us, that we're encouraging one another. Hey, how's your Bible reading going? Are you struggling? Are, are you reading? Can I help you? Hey, let's get together. Let's, let's pick up the phone. Like some of the things that Pastor Rod does. He meets with a couple brothers and, hey, let's open God's word together. Let's read this. And countless others gathering with sisters or, or, or together with couples and reading God's word, right? Not sitting around talking about the latest episode of our favorite TV show or, or what the weather's like this week. Yeah, it's going to rain and it's going to be sunny. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about something that has eternal value. Let's, let's understand the world we live in and let us help one another get to heaven. From the words and works of Jesus are to be central to the gatherings of the church. We must understand this biblical principle that disciples are formed and finished through the regular teaching of God's word, not by any other means than the word of God applied to the life of God's people. Let us be assured of its reliability. If you're assured of its reliability, you will be more inclined to use it to stand upon. Furthermore, let us take away this final point. Christianity is profoundly simple. It is so simple, friends. It, it is not complicated at all. It, it, it can be, you really can reduce it down to, to this, these two words. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. That's, that's what Jesus does here. Peter, don't worry about that other guy. Don't worry about him. Follow me. 
Don't, don't worry about their blessings. Don't worry about their bank accounts. Don't worry about that they don't have persecution. Don't worry about the fact they seem to be on easy street. Don't worry about that. You follow me. Go where the king's path takes you. And the question that I want to just be in our souls this week is, are we following Jesus? Are we going where King Jesus is going or are we going our own way? I mention this book often because I can't get over it. Besides the Bible, it is my favorite book. It was written a number of years ago, a couple hundred in fact. And if you've never read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you just commend that, you read that regularly. And here's why. Because Bunyan is so pastoral. He, he pastors his people through the book. He didn't write this to children, by the way. He wrote it to like adults to help them. He was locked away in prison. And he was helping his church understand how to follow King Jesus. As one flees the city of destruction through the slaw of despair to the village of morality where everybody just sort of living good, past the wicked gate, up to the difficult hill, down through the valley of humiliation, next to Vanity Fair where your best friend is murdered. Through Doubting Castle where you find a new friend named Hopeful. Across the delectable mountains, after a quick stop in the beautiful country of Beulah, when you and your best friend go through the river dark and face death face on to where you finally arrive at the celestial city and are welcomed by angels. Friend, the king's path is hard. Bunyan's point is simple. It is hard to follow Jesus. From all the way back when you fled the city of destruction and came to that narrow gate. It's been hard to follow Jesus. But you made it. You made it because you had a central focus. And that was the word of God. To obey the will of God. To faithfully follow him. Wherever the king's path took you. Friend, will you follow Jesus this week? If you're a believer this morning, will you get back on the path? And follow Jesus for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us the strength this morning to follow Jesus. We confess that we, like the Apostle Peter, have often gone down our own path. Gone our own way. Renew us this morning. Recommission us to taking this message to a lost and dying world taking the gospel, the word of life to those around us, to, to be men and women of the word. Help us to be that. Let this church be known for the church that is about the word of God and graciously extending the gospel to all those who would turn and trust in Jesus. It's for your glory we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.